0: This is General Porter. General Porter, General Porter. Go ahead and your station. Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And good day, everybody. We're glad to have you aboard here on Midrats. As always, if you are with us live, I would like to invite you to scroll down to the bottom of the show page. That is where we have the chat room open. We've already have. Paul and Stephen are there waiting to say howdy for you. And uh, in the course of the show, if there's some observations you want to share, or if there are questions you would like for us to direct to our guest, that's the perfect place to uh, go do that. And uh, we all have busy lives, so if you got to run off before the show is over with, or if you haven't already done so, I'd like to invite you to go to iTunes or Spreaker or any of your other podcast aggregators. Go find Midrat and subscribe to it. It's free, can't beat the price, and that way MedRats will be ready for you whenever you get around to us. But hey, let's go ahead and get on with today's show. The People's Liberation Army Navy has her capital ships underway for those who have been paying attention, and uh, her construction rate continues to be impressive. And her neighbors, are trying to play catch-up, whether you're looking at some very interesting announcements about the Japanese plan for her navy that we haven't seen uh, that nation building in this way or planning to at least in about a century. And there are lots of lessons that are taking place both on the military, the diplomatic and the economic standpoint from uh, the last few months on the Eurasian landmass, whether you're looking at food, fuel, demographics or economics. And today we're going to cover this along with a lot of the latest development concerning Taiwan and the straits between Taiwan and the People's Republic of China with a returning guest, Dean Cheng. Dean is the Senior Research Fellow for Chinese Political and Security Affairs at the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation. Dean, it's great to have you back on Midraps. Thank you for having me. And just to kind of uh, kick things off, from a national security point of view, it has been the the topic of the day for a long time, but there have been a lot of people, understandably so, uh, who have uh, spent a lot of their time focused on what's been going on uh, between Russia and Ukraine since the 24th of February. But uh, the rest of the world, and especially the People's Republic of China, they, they haven't been... Uh, casually standing by and waiting for everybody to catch up to them. Uh, Things have been developing. For people that are just now uh, starting to uh, look around and see what's been going on since the 24th of February, when it comes to Taiwan and China, what are those uh, bold-faced items they've missed?
1: Well, probably the biggest thing that they missed was the visit of Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan, which the Chinese uh, absolutely uh, had a fit over. Um, in no small part because she is number three in the line of succession. So she, it's, this isn't simply the visit of a Congress uh, person. It is in fact number three in the line of succession. Uh, head of the, uh, so, you know, she is the Speaker of the House, so head of one of our uh, legislative chambers from the Chinese perspective this was a huge political statement. So as a result the Chinese engaged in some of the biggest military exercises um, that we have seen in quite a few years, uh, arguably the largest uh, around Taiwan uh, since the mid-1990s when we had what was known as the third Taiwan Straits crisis. Uh, In fact people are starting to term this one the fourth Taiwan Straits crisis. Uh, What was particularly notable uh, were five missiles flew over the island of Taiwan. In the past, China has fired missiles, but they've always been to the north or to the south. Um, And, interestingly, uh, these were part of a larger set of exercises. That included uh, multiple Chinese carrier operations. Uh, Both of their carriers went to sea. Um, It's not clear if they operated as a single task force or as two separate ones. Um, And interestingly, from the Chinese own announcements and reporting, uh, one of the other key missions that they uh, tried out was um, joint anti-submarine warfare uh, exercises involving both uh, the Chinese Air Force and the uh, Chinese Navy. Uh, This is interesting because, one, the Chinese military has been steadily moving towards joint operations uh, since the late 1990s, and with each uh, passing decade, they, they... Uh, drill down further into jointness, but also the specific emphasis on anti-submarine warfare, um, because uh, the PLA Navy understands that our submarines um, in some ways pose an even greater threat than our carriers.
2: With the Chinese activities uh, around Taiwan, how much of what we see going on is is practicing how much are they uh, learning out of this are there, you know are there any reports of of uh, developments that they uh, are showing signs of improving their their abilities on the basis of the what they've already uh, done offshore taiwan or anything like that
1: so when we look at the evolution of the PLA navy um, it is really striking to see how they have gone from uh, a a brown water navy, uh, which is really all they were in the early 1990s, to a green water navy, uh, one that operated more offshore to today's blue water navy. Um, certainly the various exercises they have held uh, around Taiwan have contributed to that. They have circumnavigated the island. They have flown uh, air airstrikes uh, to uh, target points southeast and northeast of the island. Uh, they have circumnavigated by air. Um, But we see a lot of the naval evolution beyond that, uh, beyond the ability to strike targets, with the regular rotation of a task group to the Gulf of Aden. Um, The very first time the Chinese did this, uh, the ships actually never pulled into port. They went all the way out to the Gulf of Aden, stayed there for about six months and came back, and did not do any port calls, and apparently they learned from that that Ships and sailors don't do well that way. Um, and so as time has evolved over the last uh, 20 years or so of uh, two two such rotations a year, we've watched them incorporate naval diplomacy uh, where they will do port calls and allow visitors on board ship. Um, they have done underway replenishment. They have deployed with uh, soft teams, special operations forces, um, They have interacted with foreign navies, uh, our own um, Task Force 70, Europe's uh, Task Force Atalante, uh, Japanese and Indian uh, forces. And we believe at this point every major Chinese surface combatant commander has done at least one of these rotations. So um, that's been part of of the learning process. Uh, Around Taiwan, what we uh, see is ever more complex exercises, um, con- uh, task force operations. Uh, Chinese carriers now operate with escorts, um, underway replenishment, um, both strike and air defense operations, etc. Um, the extent to which these are experimental, that these are war games as opposed to exercises, is less clear simply because the Chinese don't necessarily tell us whether something is supposed to be an exercise or supposed to be a war game.
0: Yeah, it's you outlined there how China you can you can just kind of like watching an athlete uh, get ready, uh, seeing they're they're stretching, they're learning, uh, they because they don't have what we have uh, centuries of you know global presence from a naval perspective, but yeah. Uh, It's one thing to look at the numbers. Uh, It's another thing, and our our friend Claude Barabay has has done some good work on the side, you know, putting some numbers to their deployments and what they've been doing. Uh, But you occasionally hear fairly informed and well-credentialed individuals who, where when you look at it from a military analyst point of view, you you look at the numbers, you look at the fleet, you look at the industrial base, you look at them – crawl, walk, run, headed in towards uh, what should be, uh, if, you, if you take that learning curve five, ten years down the road, is an impressive blue water force. But then you have the alternative argument where people are, in essence, saying that everybody is worrying too much, that they see the uh, Chinese shipbuilding program as a jobs program for them. It's kind of like they're ghost cities. They can't train enough people to grow a fleet that fast. They're a land power. They're they're not seriously going to be able to challenge the American Navy and our allies at sea. I, I, I'm just curious, putting on an opposite hat here, that side of the argument um, is that. People who are have a really different view of Chinese intentions in history are they stuck in the 1990s? Is it better explained by a psychiatrist? But that that dismissal of of what China is in 2022, uh, where does some of that argument have merit, and when of it is just off the tracks?
1: Well. I think one of the most important complicating factors of any analysis of the Chinese military, Army, Navy, Air Force, Rocket Forces, PLA Strategic Support Force, is the reality that China hasn't fought a war since 1979. So we really don't have a good sense of how their military will operate uh, when the rubber meets the road, when, you know, uh Maltke's dictum that no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. The Chinese have not met an enemy, so we don't really know. Um, a second piece to this is, I think, um, a certain dismissal of a lot of non-Western military forces. Um, you know, It's interesting to consider that 80 years ago, um, U.S. Marines went ashore at Guadalcanal, um, after you know the battles in the Coral Sea and Midway really pretty much put pay to the assumption that the Japanese, once they met good red blooded American boys, were just going to turn tail and run or be defeated. Um, I fear that we we sometimes still have some of that mentality there. Um, the continental power versus maritime power is a very interesting aspect because when we look at the Imperial German Navy, the uh, uh, Reichsmarine, and even the Soviet fleet, um, which also didn't fight too many battles, um, there was a very different mentality towards the naval power, sea power, than was true for the United States, uh, Great Britain, or even Japan. Um, China is unique in that regard because it is a continental power, a land power, that is dependent on the seas in a way that neither Imperial Germany, Nazi Germany, nor the Soviet Union ever was. Um, China has to access the seas simply to feed itself. It is a net food importer. It needs to access the seas at this point in order to keep the lights burning and the factories running because it is a net importer of fuel. Um, And, of course, it needs the oceans in order to move everything from T-shirts to computers um, to stores in Europe, South America, North America, etc. So all that being said, um, is China's Navy going to be able to take on the United States? This is a blue water navy. This is a navy that is building combatants at a far higher rate than anyone else in the world, but these are not obsolete ships. Uh, as far as we can tell, based on their electronic signatures, based on what we can see physically, these are sophisticated warships carrying significant uh, armaments, uh, advanced electronic suites, etc. Uh, anyone who has studied Chinese hacking should know that China can write software and can do com- you know, computerized operations. Uh, they, pra- they are building the shaft of the spear as well as the tip of the spear. We are looking at underway replenishment ships, and they are practicing that. Uh, they are doing resupply, and of course they're going to be much more likely to fight close to home. So I think that those who f- say, "Oh, this is just a jobs program," are the same sorts of people who probably argue that any new U.S. warships are simply a jobs program, and really, y'all, you know, do we do we need any do we need any new warships really? Uh, war tanks, war planes. I mean, isn't this all just jobs programs? Um, Sure. There's no question that people are employed doing this. By the way, that jobs program and all those uh, skilled labor is going to be necessary to repair ships and build new ships in event of a conflict. Um, And it's an interesting question whether or not this quote-unquote jobs program for China doesn't actually also, again, give them the ability to sustain a conflict past the first 90 days to keep building combatants to replace uh, damaged or destroyed warships and whether or not we couldn't, in fact, benefit from something along those lines. Um, The Chinese have multiple hot production lines. They are producing surface combatants of all shapes and sizes, submarines, carriers, and combat aircraft at rates that um, we may want to consider not a bug but a feature for them.
2: Now, one of the one of the questions that keeps getting posed is, and especially with uh, Taiwan, is do they have the amphibious forces necessary to uh, actually uh, make landings on Taiwan? And there's been a lot of discussion about the use of of uh, Chinese commercial shipping and their ferry system, uh, which they've experimented with. We've seen the experiments to uh, to carry. Uh, military equipment, what, what do you think about their, their amphibious capabilities at this time? For the
1: longest time, one of the big gaps in the PLA Navy was a lack of amphibious capability. Um, they had a lot of landing ship tanks, uh, some which were built around very old designs uh, looking more like something uh, you know, that would land on the coast of Normandy. Um, but over the last five or so years, we have watched the Chinese really put into much larger-scale production um, much more advanced uh, amphibious assault ships, things that look a lot closer to the America, uh, certainly um, you know at least as advanced as the old Iwo Jima class. Uh, we are not talking about World War II-type ships. Now we are talking about much more seagoing, uh, amphibious assault ships. They have been building their version of air cushion landing ships, uh, landing craft for a while, uh, sort of like LCACs, but much closer to the Russian ones, which are huge. Probably the most worrisome aspect, however, was about three, uh, I want to say about three or four years ago, pre-COVID, I know that, the Chinese announced that they were going to quadruple the size of the PLA naval infantry. Um, these are the people who actually are absolutely trained for amphibious warfare force, storming ashore, etc. Um, so they were going to go from two to three brigades roughly to something like nine. Now, that meant that the people who were going to go ashore, who were going to spearhead, were no longer just a couple of brigades. Now we're talking the equivalent of divisions. Um, and while you can use ferries and row rows and things like that to resupply to land the follow-on echelons, the people who are going to go ashore in that first wave really need to be specialists, and that the Chinese military was expanding that specialist capacity. When you consider that the Chinese also have been modernizing the 15th Airborne Army, their um, airborne forces including, interestingly, displays of a homegrown version of the BMD. Uh, This is not a copy of the the Russian BMD. This is a mechanized airborne infantry combat vehicle that is supposed to come down from the sky. Um, That's enormously important because, of course, the classic problem for airborne forces is that they're very light and really don't have either the mobility or the protected firepower to take on heavier formations. Uh, The fact that the Chinese have invested in building their own mechanized airborne combat vehicle uh, says that they have been thinking about this and that any Chinese uh, forced entry effort into Taiwan will probably enjoy the benefits of both a substantial naval force landing to lead the way, but also airborne forces that they could link up with that can probably hold their own for a while.
0: One thing that has always been a head-scratcher for me is we've all been watching the rise of China, and you outlined how, even in the last few years, they've put significant investment in modern equipment at scale, which are designed for a few other things than to go at Taiwan. But when you look at Taiwan proper, and and she's a small nation of just $23 or so, is uh, she, her military equipment to this day in many areas is almost uh, museum quality, whether you're talking about their tanks or a lot of their ships. They uh, Last year they only spent 2.2% of their GDP on defense, and in spite of everything that's been happening recently, uh, even though it represents a little bit over 13% increase, uh, they're expected next year to increase by 2.4%. You counter that with what we've seen uh, in Poland, for instance, where she went from a few years ago barely getting 2%, that now she's going on board 4.5%. Uh, a lot of people, including myself, uh, and former Secretary of Defense Esper also has talked about this recently. Uh, what What is it about Taiwan where – You could have a nation such as ours who's doing serious planning, force shaping, and expenditures to defend their island when they don't seem to take the threat if you base monetary investment as a reflection of national concern in their national defense. They just seem to be very lowballing their expenses.
1: Again, I think that there's a bunch of different factors at work. Um, The first is that Taiwan, for better or worse, is a democracy. And what that means is that uh, defense and foreign policy are rarely the issue of the day. Um, And uh, I can't remember, I think it was Mark Twain who said, nothing concentrates the mind like the prospect of being hanged in the morning. Um, Poland, uh, as you noted, was not spending all that much on defense. Uh, and probably would still not be spending that much, but for the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which really threw a whole lot of assumptions into the trash can. Uh, I'll note here that Germany says that they are now going to finally hit 2% of GDP uh, per the Wales, I think, um, NATO summit. Um, But for years, it was not even a secret that Germany had no, zero submarines that could go to sea, that it could barely put a dozen modern fighter aircraft in the sky, that it, you know, I mean, et cetera, I mean, the litany goes on. Um, one hopes that NATO as a whole is taking all this more seriously. Um, color me a little bit skeptical. So I think one problem is just the inevitable politics of democracy that says uh, defense is something we'll spend more on later. Um, a second part to this is that Taiwan's own arms industry is somewhat limited, um, and so therefore is dependent on importing arms. And the only people who will sell arms to Taiwan is the United States. So when you say that Taiwan has museum-quality equipment, that's absolutely right. I believe they only in the past two years finally retired the M41 Bulldog. Um, I mean, that was a light tank designed and built in the 1950s. Um, The bulk of the Taiwan armored forces are uh, M48A5s and and the Taiwan upgrade M48Ts. The M48s were already being phased out during our time in Vietnam and replaced by the m 60 so, absolutely, they, they have a bunch. I mean, their Navy actually is, relatively speaking, somewhat better off. Uh, the centerpiece of their service fleet are the kid-class, uh, uh, for the for, former U.S. kid-class uh, destroyers. Um, but their submarine force is World War II-era, um, I believe Guppy-2s. Um, and they are now forced to try and build their own because no one will sell them submarines. Um, why else the reality is that um, Taiwan also has these, the difficult issue of up until fairly recently say the 1990s Taiwan had the qualitative edge sure the Chinese are inevitably going to outnumber Taiwan the question is whether or not they will be better quality wise than the Taiwanese um, In the 90s, we started to see that the quality of equipment was shifting um, as the Chinese scrapped a lot of their 1950s fighter aircraft, warships, etc., and started new builds that were more sophisticated. So now we see Taiwanese F-16s confronting Chinese Su-27s and Su-33s. But more importantly is that, Also, the Chinese military has improved the quality of its own training. Its personnel are getting better. And all that takes money for Taiwan to counter, and again, in a democracy of competing interests. uh, In a democracy, you also have the question of what do you do when you are confronting the world's largest military? And you're not sure about whether anyone will come to support you. There's going to be some divisions, uh, you know, um, and China, while it has made loud noises and rattled sabers, again, because it hasn't fought a war, is in a weird way more abstract threat than Russia is certainly post-Ukraine.
2: Well, the uh, the Chinese Communist Party has a congress coming up on, I think, the 16th of October. Uh, would we expect, do you think, any activity involving Taiwan to come only after that that Congress where Xi has a chance to kind of cement his position?
1: Uh, yes. I, I, I mean, first of all, I, I certainly would not expect the Chinese to try and invade Taiwan um, before that uh, for precisely that reason. Um, it would not serve Xi's interest to be in the middle of literally a shooting war. Um, but even after that, it's not like okay, Congress is over, um, you know, start your engines. Um, It's useful to remember a couple of things. The People's Liberation Army is the largest military. It has been modernizing steadily, but it's not where it thinks it needs to be. The PLA says in their own writings that we need to become fully modernized. And What does that mean? We need to be fully mechanized, and that's an interesting aspect right there, that until fairly recently, there were actual leg units with towed artillery and trucks um in the pla order of battle ground force order of battle and those those units are are being you know ultimately phased out and they're most of the way they're on that so fully mechanized fully informationized drones computers battlefield uh command posts that are digitalized etc um that they we're still working on that's expensive that's a lot of equipment everything's got to work connectivity um, you know uh, anyone who has tried, you know, who has had dropped, uh, you know, Zoom calls and and Skype calls, et cetera, knows that connectivity is hard. Um, even more so when they're bad guys, um, in this case us, probably, uh, jamming them and the like. And then now fully intelligence-ized, incorporating artificial intelligence, the military version of the Internet of Things, dealing with the terabytes of data that are going to be flowing across, over, and through the modern battlefield. So the PLA has basically said, we're not going to be, in our own terms, fully ready for war with anybody. Till 2027. Now, if Taiwan declares independence the day after the Party Congress, yeah, then it's game on. But I think that if Taiwan is careful, and Tsai Ing-wen, the head of Taiwan, has been very careful not to provide a casus belli, then I think that the time of greatest danger is much closer to 2026, 27, 28 than it is immediately right after. Now, one other quick thought here. With the... Party Congress coming up. One of the things to keep in mind is going to be that we will see a new Chinese military leadership inducted. The Central Military Commission for the People's Liberation Army will be turned over. Uh, There will be new officers who will rise and it will be very, very interesting, very, very useful to see who are these people? What kind of background do they have? Do they come out of a more digitalized experimental force? These are people whose the bulk of their career will now have been spent doing joint operations at the brigade level, at the division level, um, and ultimately at the group army and military war zone level um, before their, their promotion in October. So these are people who are going to be much more conversant with all the capabilities at their disposal than earlier generations of commanders who came up through analog.
0: And speaking of analog, it, one thing that popped into my mind when you were talking earlier about there's you know, features and bugs all wrapped up in the one nature of democracies where people and their priorities are in a well-functioning democracy reflected in the decision of their elected representatives. That's good and fine, and, and we, we want to keep that. Uh, but Taiwan, like the U.S., and in its own fashion – even People's Republic of China. Uh, there's a thing with capitalism where uh, your country, your companies will look at sourcing the highest quality product from the area that has the least production costs uh, as opposed to doing it domestically. And uh, in an era of peace, uh, things kind of settle out where they are. And it was COVID helped demonstrate the fragility of the global economic system to non, non-business non shocks, whether it's mother nature or human nature, one of the two. And one of the things that it brought above the background noise for everybody is, uh, you know, we are talking about the transfer of all these terabytes of information, fully informationalized and intelligentized armies that ride on information one and zeros. And that requires computer power. And in an information age, in information-dominated warfare, uh, whereas there was oil for the mechanized era of warfare, whether it came from Romania, the Caucasus, Russia, the U.S., uh, in a modern sense, with computer technology, Taiwan is the Saudi Arabia with how she produces chips and you know there's been some discussions and some movements at least in the west of finding ways to uh, mitigate that huge presence she has uh, how do the chinese look at their domestic computer reliability on a strategic point of view relative to how most western capitalistic democracies at peace will uh, arrange their their critical infrastructure
1: so that's a great question because that answer is a reminder that supply chains work both ways. So one of the things that I think the Chinese love to play on is you need us. We don't need you. You need us. Um, and so don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Uh, they don't turn into the Incredible Hulk after that, but the threat is always there. Um, so the, But the reality is that well, China manufactures an enormous amount of memory chips. They don't produce enough of the logic chips. So, and the logic chips are what make the cell phones run and the computers run and a lot of the sensors run. And in that regard, what Taiwan manufactures above all is logic chips. And they are the world's leading producer of advanced logic chips. Uh, that's the whole point of TSMC, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation. China is, has been investing a lot of money into trying to catch up, and every so often you hear reports that uh, SMIC, I think the state manufacturer of uh, uh, integrated circuits, um, sorry, I don't remember exactly what SMIC stands for, but it's the Chinese uh, response to TSMC. Um, is now potentially producing 7 nanometer which, uh, chips, uh, which would put them pretty close to, to the cutting edge. But from what we can tell, they may be able to make those, but not in the absolute quantities necessary to satisfy peacetime demand for all of the cell phones, etc., much less potentially wartime demand. So, one, one of the reasons why China casts covetous eyes upon Taiwan um, Besides history and politics is that Taiwan is this manufacturer of this key resource Um, And one of the reasons why the United States cares about Taiwan is because Taiwan is a manufacturer of this key resource Beijing ideally wouldn't depend on Taiwan um, And would make it all themselves and microchips are part of made in China 2025 But the reality is that designing and building chips, the fabrication plants cost literally billions of dollars. Uh, They aren't built overnight. They have to be equipped with a variety of advanced lithography machines uh, to cut the channels that are 7 nanometers wide or less. Um, Those machines, in turn, are built mostly outside of Asia. Uh, One of the key producers is Dutch. Uh, They seem to have a lock on that particular um, type of equipment. And China openly tries to buy it and not so openly tries to steal the relevant technologies because they're not there on the machines necessary to make the channels that eventually lead to the chips. Um, This is part of the great game, if you will, of the 21st century, is figuring out how to manufacture chips, manufacture the machines that manufactured chips, and then produce all of this in sufficient quantity of high quality, consistent quality, that will allow you to compete. By the way, memory chips are also very important. I don't want to belittle that. And again, while China is a much larger producer of those, um, they're not the only producer, Uh, There's a key American company, for example, Micron, that that is part of that. Um, But the point here is that uh, the Chinese would love to dominate the market. The Chinese would love to be totally self-sufficient end-to-end in terms of supply chain. They're not there. Um, And that's before we hit things like software. Uh, One of the things that the Trump administration did was, with regards to Huawei, uh, ban Huawei from purchasing um, Android software apps. As a result, Chinese Huawei cell phones are pretty much useless, uh, the newer ones, because they can't access the Android store. And Chinese apps, one, are typically in Chinese, um, and two, are of dubious quality in terms of bugs and in terms of security. So there, you know, all the stuff that we tend to focus on is on hardware chips and the like. But there's also a huge software supply chain issue that touches on information security that touches on access, and has a real influence as well on the ability of your systems and all your operations to work. Um, Just one thing to think about here is, you know, every computer, typically in the lower right-hand corner, has a clock. It tells you what time it is. That clock is a program. It's not always clear where that program came from. And, you know, well, we got it off of the the you know sort of giant um, software library that we have, okay, but are you sure that that is pristine? Are you sure that that hasn't been hacked? Are you sure it doesn't have some nasty little you know um, hangers on that are waiting to be activated? Um, software supply chains are every bit as much a potential threat as hardware supply chains one of the uh,
2: one of the Questions that has been posed out there is is China's relationship with Russia, and I think Admiral just recently said that that uh, Putin has been in the process of making himself into a junior partner of of China, and China's been playing. I think you said it earlier. You know that uh, we'll get along great as long as you um, don't cross me, but. China has so far not been supplying Russia with its weapons needs, and and so Russia has been going to the North the North Koreans. What, what is this all about? Can you, can you give me some idea what China's up to with with this Russia thing?
1: Um, so, Russia and China, it's important to recognize, are not allies. Okay, that's that's the first and foremost important aspect to consider here. These are two countries who share. A common dislike of the United States, but they have relatively little love for each other. This is not the U.S.-Great Britain war, U.S.-Japan relationships. So China looks at Russia and says, hmm, you've got a lot of stuff I want to buy, especially energy, but also food. You have now become a food exporter. Congratulations. Um, But I'm not going to trust you because you've stabbed me in the back multiple times in the past. Um, so – and Russia uh, is more than a little xenophobic. Um, these two countries should deserve each other in that regard. Uh, and so Russia's mi- miserable uh, efforts in Ukraine um, have run through a lot of their arms supply uh... munitions and and the like so they would love to buy chinese because it fits into their equipment uh... same calibers, but also um... is probably at least as sophisticated as anything the russians make um... china looks at openly selling weapons to russia and understands that if it does that it jeopardizes its relationship not only with the united states which is rocky to put it mildly but also europe and like I said, Holland is the producer of the machines that make advanced microchips. So you really don't want to tick off the the Europeans necessarily. North Korea is a hermit kingdom, has no good relations with anyone, including China, um, and is looking for money. So And it probably has some of the world's largest supplies of 152-millimeter ammunition and 122-millimeter ammunition and grad rockets and all the rest. Uh, so... Um, Everyone from the North Korean and Russian perspectives benefit by arms sales, uh, and North Korea presumably gets to make newer stuff to put into their uh, warehouses. Um, China, however, is not about to alienate Russia, because Russia ties down NATO and forces and attention. Um, And conversely, uh, this has been openly stated in Chinese media, If we invade Taiwan, we are going to need Russian diplomatic support. Um, So the Chinese are walking an interesting line there. Uh, One other additional interesting footnote to this is that China has never recognized Russia's annexation of Crimea. And that's in part because China also has its own relationship with Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is a major producer of advanced aerospace equipment, rocket engines and the like, and apparently uh, Ukraine has been something of a customer for Hikvision and other Chinese internal surveillance equipment, among other things. So China also doesn't necessarily want to alienate Kyiv by openly siding with Moscow but at the same time as it has been happily purchasing Russian oil, Russian natural gas, and Russian food has been providing a de facto financial lifeline to Russia um, in its conflict with Ukraine.
0: One thing that China and Russia do have in common, um, though in different degrees and different flavors, is they're both autocratic nations and though everybody who's spent time in the U.S. military knows that (laughs) depending upon which command you're at, when it comes to your readiness numbers and getting ready for inspection, there's a little bit of creative work that can go on to (laughs) move you from uh, C3 to C2, so to speak. Uh, But that's, it's generally speaking, um, that's kind of retail uh, readiness fraud, if you want to use that word. Uh, Our creating a false impression of readiness. But what we uh, we saw in the Russia-Ukrainian war, especially the beginning part, is – and it goes back to you know, your statement a few times, China has not fought a war in a very long time – is uh, when you have – in autocratic nations, you don't want to be the person delivering bad news. When the boss wants all the slides being green, it takes a little more chutzpah in that culture than in ours – to be able to deliver bad news. So we saw uh, wheeled vehicles didn't wheel very long because the tires were too old. Um, troops were Russian troops were sick because their food was old. Um, their equipment didn't work as designed early on. Uh, and a lot of their units could not move because they didn't have the logistics tail because all the trucks had been sold off. And that's something in the back of my mind when you look at the the Chinese, they they drill well, they take good care of their ships, um, and they appear to be very ready, but is there in the background a a similar uh, concern that the Chinese military should have that are they really being reported what their status actually is and uh, you know, Xi, especially uh, civilian leaders, when they find out their military is lying to them, tend to be grumpy in those societies. Uh, how, how, does, how is that concern, which would be beneficial to us, uh, in the background and how much it might be overthought?
1: Well, uh, first let me say that when we talk about retail uh, and we look at Fat Leonard, um, that's some pretty impressive retail. Uh, true okay i mean i mean that guy operated for years i mean how deep was that rot in our system and oh gee he just happened to run away huh really that shows that he keeping him under you know guard and and making him you know pay for his sins doesn't seem to have been that high a priority so uh one, I'm always a little leery of the, oh, man, authoritarian systems, they'll, they'll just come apart at the seams when, they, when push comes to shove, unlike us fine, upstanding, you know, democratic countries. And it's like, eh, maybe not so much, but um, – <laughs> Are the Chinese worried about this? Absolutely. I have no doubt that the uh, Central Disciplinary and Inspection Commissions of the PLA have been working overtime ever since February of this year. Once they saw what happened with the Ukrainians, I have no doubt that there are people going with microscopes over unit uh, equipment lists and inventories, um, people's bank accounts. And it is useful to note here. Xi Jinping has been doing an anti-corruption campaign since he came to office in 2012, 10 years ago. Unlike past Chinese leaders, he didn't stop after two to three years and say, okay, you know, everybody's gotten the message, don't be corrupt, and by the way, I got rid of a bunch of my political rivals. We're good. No, this has been ongoing, and every year the number of people put away rises. And that includes military officers, and as the Chinese phrase it, tigers and flies, senior people. You know, both previous vice chairmen of the Central Military Commission, one of them was dragged out of his deathbed, sentenced to death for corruption. The other one didn't have to come out of his deathbed, but was also tried and found guilty of corruption. Senior leaders have been found guilty of corruption, and so have junior leaders. Um, particular focus has been paid on the General Logistics Department. Partly because there's more opportunity for corruption there, but also because, um, this, again, when you guys are corrupt, you really are the ones who are going to be stripping out spare parts, gasoline, etc. Um, is there corruption in the system? Most likely. Information flow within the PLA, we think, um, like Chinese society writ large, does not flow according to the official table of organization and effectiveness. It does not flow according to the bureaucratic lines and blocks that you see in your line and block chart. It is built on relationships. You and I went to school together. Our children married each other. You and uh, you know, I come from the same province, from the same hometown. There's all of these you know, sort of cross-hatched relationships that often take precedence over information flow. Uh, according, uh, that, sorry, guide information flow and take precedence over formal channels, the way it's supposed to go. We, As far as we can tell, in the EP3 incident of 2001, the local air base commander, the regional military commander, the uh, military region commander, and the highest level authorities, information did not flow smoothly through those levels. But information did flow. Um, That is, in some ways, Xi Jinping's great nightmare. It's one of the other things that the PLA has talked about for now 30 years, regularizing the military, making it operate according to the rules, meaning I report to you, you're the first person I pass information on. doesn't matter the quote-unquote relationships, guanxi, that we have with each other. But this is ingrained in the culture, so it's not clear that... uh, any amount of exhortation, rules and court-martials are necessarily going to produce anything like the information flow you would expect. And that also applies to the corruption aspect. One of the big problems that was identified in the uh, first term of Xi Jinping was a promotion for profit, that people paid off um, uh, senior officers, review boards, etc., to get promoted, and in turn then paid back um, the, the bribes and things, um, especially in the logistics setup, um, through corruption. And when the crackdown came, you actually wound up with a lot of people unable to pay off those debts, and that created some interesting internal problems right there. So I think there's no question that the PLA is worried about this, but they have also been spending a lot of time trying to root it out um, until they have a war, until they have a real no kidding conflict, it's going to be very hard to know where the system ultimately has settled down at.
2: Yeah, I, I was thinking of the uh, Royal Army and Navy, which used to people used to buy commissions, but I don't think that was bribery in the same sense of of uh, the Chinese thing. Uh, if if we if China was going to go do something. Do you think the first indication of trouble for the for the West and Taiwan would be some kind of cyber uh, incident to uh, gain control or deny control of of our uh, computer systems to uh, to act?
1: So I'm going to take that question in two ways. Um, I think that before we even have a Taiwan scenario, which by the way is beyond the graduation exercise, right? I mean, you're talking about launching an amphibious invasion across 100 miles of bad water, far broader than the English Channel. So this is ship to shore, more than shore to shore. For a military that hasn't fought a war in 40 years, that's a tall order. And that's with new equipment, new organization, arguably new doctrine, and a whole lot of untried personnel. So I think that long before we get to that stage, that to me what is worrisome is the prospect of a Chinese version of Grenada, an urgent fury. That the PLA is going to want, and ideally for them will get, a smaller, more limited conflict, one that they can't lose, because at the end of the day, they would win this version of Grenada by sheer force of numbers if necessary, but which would allow them to test equipment, doctrine, uh, organization, um, and personnel. Uh, you know, I think it's very true that you could not have had Desert Storm without Urgent Fury. Um, and I think that, you know, now where might that be? good question. Um, When we look around the Chinese periphery, uh, someplace like possibly in the Spratlys area against, say, Vietnam or Malaysia, neither of whom have allies. Um, Maybe on the Sino-Indian border, only because that has been a hot spot, even though now supposedly the two sides are pulling back from each other. Um, Maybe the Senkakus, um, although that's very close to Taiwan um, and would be against the Japanese and that's probably the least likely of these. Or maybe someplace much farther afield, uh, going ashore in Africa. Like I said, there is a Chinese task force always in the Gulf of Aden. Maybe people go ashore to go after pirates or something. But I think that that's the first first uh, or the sort of precondition. Um, then if there were a conflict over Taiwan, what would the Chinese most likely do? I think that absolutely there would be uh, offensive computer operations um, against a variety of things. Um, military communications, I think you'd probably see cuts in submarine cables. Uh, I think that you may see attacks on critical uh, infrastructure in a non-lethal way if you had massive power outages on the West Coast, if you had the uh, railway switching system go down, if you had air traffic control unable to operate, um, you know, where it starts to fritz initially. So you have canceled flights, but you're not talking about planes falling out of the sky. Um, I think that you would see attacks on our space systems. Um, and again, that may not be kinetic. It may well be cyber. It may be attacks on tracking and telemetry and control systems. Uh, et cetera. Um, I do also think that you would see massive political efforts. Um, For example, would you see labor unrest? Would you see uh, companies unwilling to provide uh, support? We've seen companies unwilling to uh, cooperate with law enforcement to unlock cell phones and the like on the grounds of, well, that's not what we do. Those same companies often don't seem to have any trouble working with China. Um, I guess China is just a better enforcer of human rights and, and you know, limits on law enforcement and they don't abuse rights and things, unlike you know, the United States in the eyes of these companies. But the point here is that um, that, I suspect, would also be one of the interesting, uh, one of the areas where the Chinese would, would be taking measures. If I was an intelligence analyst, I would throw out a couple of other things just to keep an eye on. Um, uh, one would be Walmart. Um, If there were supply chain problems with Walmart, if Walmart was told that, hey, you're not going to get 5,000 containers worth of stuff in time for Christmas um, because uh, the trains aren't available, uh, that might be a signal. China has the world's largest shipping fleets. If a lot of those merchant ships started turning away from American and other ports and started sailing for either neutral or friendly ports. And China has a lot of friendly ports. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, again, that might be a sign of something to come. So these are, these are things that, that are a little less you know uh, obvious, but might be things worth keeping an eye out for.
0: So when you look at China's neighbors, Um, You know, a lot of people look about the big islands, you know, Taiwan, the Japanese archipelago, the relations with Philippines. We mentioned uh, Indonesia, Malaysia briefly earlier. But one thing in the last year that continues to pop up, uh, and I'll just use as an example uh, uh, something you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, the Battle of Guadalcanal in World War II. When you look at what's happening in the smaller islands in the Pacific that for decades America looked at as their backyard. The Solomon Islands and, of course, Australia and New Zealand has a, have a play in there with the rest of the Commonwealth. But a lot of these islands that are, you can find in the index of any larger book about the Pacific campaign of World War II, China has made some significant inroads there. And uh, I have, and a lot of people in this background, you know, we look at it from a military point of view, but there are people who argue that it simply, uh, it's simply it's economic and foreign aid uh, with her neighbors. Uh, what is your view on the Chinese game in these smaller islands? Is it a uh, we're doing it because we can, or do you see a lar- larger pattern in play here? They've been very successful.
1: I am utterly horrified. I cannot emphasize how horrified I am at the utter mismanagement by the United States government over our relations with the various island nations of the central and western Pacific. Um, We have the inside track under the Compact of Free Association with groups like the Republic of the Marshall Islands and Palau and Federated States of Micronesia, etc. And Those compacts expire next year. Well, we're we're getting around to it. We've got a special negotiator now. And it's like, that's nice. And I don't see anybody lighting a fire under anybody. As the Chinese sign agreements with entities like the Solomon Islands, which now forbids U.S. Navy ship calls. Think about that. Eighty years ago, we go ashore at Tulagi and Guadalcanal, and now... They will not allow a U.S. Coast Guard vessel to pull in. Why? Well, it's not clear, but they did just sign an agreement with China. Hmm. Um, the Chinese have built uh, uh, casinos on Saipan. They are, have approached the Marshall Islands, where we have one of the most important missile test facilities. Uh, they have approached various other uh, microstates of the region. They want to help, quote unquote, build out uh, fishing and other facilities. And we are lackadaisical at best in terms of getting these compacts signed where we will have the dominant voice on these nations' national security and foreign and defense policies. The argument is, well, you know... We really need to be careful about whether or not we give them too much money. $40 billion to Ukraine. not saying we shouldn't give that money to Ukraine. We are not talking billions of dollars to these countries. We are talking about countries that provide... You know, the geography of the Pacific hasn't changed since 1944. The islands that were there are, for the vast part, still there. And it still takes a long time to get a carrier from Hawaii to the Western Pacific. It still takes time to get a you know, manned aircraft or an unmanned aircraft from a you know, from Guam to the Western Pacific. So I, I am just utterly aghast at how little attention and effort we seem to be according and when we wake up And the Chinese are dominating the politics and, therefore, the physical security of these areas. We're all going to be wondering, how the heck did that happen? I mean, it's amazing how often people, oh, you know, the Chinese are really smart. They play Go and all that. Okay, well, you know, one of the things that Woody Allen pointed out was 80% of life is just about showing up. Well, we're not even showing up. I don't care if the Chinese are playing Go, Checkers, or or Candyland. They're probably going to win simply because they're showing up, not because of the game that they're playing. Sorry, but there it is. No,
2: that's a that's a good uh, – you made some good points. Uh, Dean, we're, we've have wasted another one of your hours, and <laughs> we really appreciate you being here with us today. Uh, anything you're working on that our listeners can look forward to seeing, and uh, when will, when will they be able to see it? Uh, let's see. I uh, have a paper that just came out on uh,
1: from uh, the Heritage Foundation regarding why China cares about Taiwan sort of tries to lay out some of the key reasons there, uh, and I'm working on a piece actually on Chinese views of cis lunar space, the volume of space between essentially geosynchronous orbit all
2: the way out to the moon and the Lagrange points mm. Well, that sounds pretty interesting. Uh, we got one out, at the Heritage, you find it at the Heritage uh, site, and the other one will be
1: out soon, I guess? Uh, yes, um, although uh, uh, hopefully before the end of the year. I think that counts as soon these days. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it does these days, yeah. Well, anyway, I, I, we really appreciate you coming on, on with us again and uh, hope you have a, a, a great
1: time. Absolutely. I, thank you for having me. I, it's always fun to uh, talk to you folks, and um, I look forward to hopefully coming back again soon.
0: Oh, we'd love to have you back. Always a pleasure, Dean. I wish you well going into September, and thank you very much, everybody, for joining us for another edition of MidRats. And until next time, hope you have a great Navy day. Cheers.
2: Friend and Piccadilly Or you'll be to blame For love has barely drove me silly Hoping you're the same